0: welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. It's been nearly four years since an inferno tore through Grenfell Tower in West London, leaving 72 dead and 74 injured. In 2012, the tower had been renovated and part of those works included the addition of aluminium composite cladding to the exterior of the building, cladding which of course has now been determined highly flammable. A more fire-resistant form of the cladding, had been turned down by the Kensington and Chelsea Tenant Management Organisation due to higher costs. As is so often the case, knowing the cost of everything and the value of nothing can have catastrophic outcomes. Grenville Tower is just one of thousands of other buildings in the UK to have been clad with this material. And since the fire, it's reported that just 200 or so of those buildings have now been made safe. This means that millions of people are still living in unsafe homes. And because they're unsafe, many residents are also struggling financially, partly because the properties have become impossible to sell or remortgage, and partly because they're paying huge sums for 24-hour fire wardens to patrol premises. Some residents are also being asked to pay tens of thousands of pounds to have the cladding removed. Returning to the Bunker Daily to talk about all of this with me is Steve Cole, Head of Corporate Strategy at the Housing Association Clarion. And making his debut on the show is Deputy Editor at Inside Housing, award-winning journalist Pete Apps. Welcome both.
1: Hiya. Thank you.
0: Pete, how many buildings, homes and people are currently affected by this scandal?
1: It's a difficult question, surprisingly difficult question to answer that, um... And in some ways, the fact that that's a difficult question to answer explains why this problem is proving so difficult to deal with. There are 462 buildings above 18 metres, which have ACM cladding of the type you mentioned in the intro. But that's just a small subset of the overall problem. There are many other different types of cladding which are equally dangerous or dangerous in in their own right. There are also lots of buildings below 18 metres that have dangerous materials on their walls. And then there's fire safety issues which extend beyond the external walls of a building. The government has so far failed in its efforts to give us an overall number the highest estimates suggest that there could be 4.6 million flats affected, and that would be 11 million people. To put that in c- context, that would be the entire population of London or one in five people in England. That's, that's the very widest drawn picture. Uh, the people at the sharpest end, it, it probably comes down to, to the hundreds of thousands, but still a very substantial amount of people.
0: So, look whether this cladding exists on you know private developments or local authority or, or or housing association owned buildings, the cladding will presumably have been installed by private contractors, developers, builders. Why aren't they simply being ordered to remove it? You know, I was I was in the co op earlier. As I went to the till, there was a massive sign saying product recall. There was an unsafe product that had entered. It's it's being recalled. The the supermarket will bear the cost of that. Why isn't that the case here?
1: To an extent, they have been told to fix these buildings, and even though the, the, the government have been a little bit loose on that, that, that they're being forced to by mortgage providers because they won't, mortgage sector won't lend on, on, on blocks with suspect cladding. So that, that, that there is that impetus to do it. A, a remediation, cladding remediation of a, of a building, and once you take into account the other factors, um, will, will run into the millions of pounds. There is no legal mechanism in the UK in most circumstances. There's some exceptions to that, but in most circumstances mm. to make either the, the, the original developer of the building or the warranty provider pay. What our mm. uh, legal system does is create mechanisms through the, the leases which people have on their flats to pass those repair costs down to the people that live in those homes. Um, and the, the, those bills are simply unaffordable you're talking in a number of instances of people being faced with with sums running into six figures without finance, because that isn't that, that finance, even if one one leaseholder can't pay, the, the job can't go ahead. Without finance, the work can't start, and so you know you have you have one problem, which is people facing enormous bills and stress and um, threat of bankruptcy. But this is a safety story, too, because if all
0: the the time you're asking leaseholders to pay... You're also asking them to live in a potentially flammable home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, look, you you said that the, the number of properties potentially affected is, you know, ranging from the hundreds of thousands to the millions. So perhaps this is an incredibly difficult question to ask you. But do we know what the total cost would be to remove unsafe cladding from every affected building you know even at that upper end uh number that, that you talked about earlier
1: well the most widely used estimate to fix this crisis is 15 billion that came from a select committee report last summer i think I think there's an interesting question to be asked at the moment there's very little being done to sort of sort the wheat from the chaff in the sense that we aren't making decisions about is full remediation the answer for every building or could we do remove some of the cladding and put sprinklers in and put fire alarms in and mm-hmm. are there other ways of making these buildings safe? Obviously there's going to be the sort of top risk category buildings that are potential Grenfell's that just have to have a full remediation, however much it costs. That might not be the case for every building. And, and, and that's a question which the government has not engaged with. But if you, if you were to approach it of how, how do we fix all of these buildings, the, the estimate that, that, that most people work to is around 15 billion. And that's a very, very large sum of money.
0: It is indeed. Um, although in, in COVID terms and the new world we live in, perhaps not so much at all. And, and who can put a price on safety? Steve, in the social housing sector, there's, of course, you know, limited cash I'm sure the private sector would argue the same too, but but we know it to be true. Housing associations and councils, therefore, are presumably going to be having to choose between, you know, having the financial capacity to do this work, to prepare housing stock for meeting things like the the net zero targets, um, as well as to develop new homes and, and, and bring on for, uh, bring on board new homes for people. If the government won't fund all of the remedial works and and we're not able to get this 50, 15 billion uh, out of the the people who installed the stuff in the first place. There's going to have to be presumably some very difficult decisions made about, you know, how much can be invested in those other priorities if, if safety has to come first. In, in that kind of instance, are housing associations like Clarion going to be forced to pursue the leaseholders for the remedial works?
2: I think the best way for me is is the way we would approach it is we'll exhaust all possible options before asking leaseholders to do that um so and we we've, we've sort of written to a number of leaseholders where there is potentially this issue to say we will exhaust all options before we ask them to make a contribution but we want to be upfront with leaseholders where that is a possibility that it is a possibility and then i think in terms of your balance question obviously we're making a lot of these decisions this balance of where we invest and where we can invest all the time and you're completely right that we have limited resources but for us it's probably too early to get drawn into that idea of what would we trade off but I think it's completely correct that the government can do more to help and that we're going to do all we can to hopefully persuade them to take action in the sort of interim we have spent about 60 million pounds on fire safety since 2017 um, we've expect, inspected about 70 buildings as part of that as well. So we are sort of taking action ourselves. I think it's also worth pointing out that this issue doesn't just affect leaseholders. I think uh, Pete touched on that. Like Obviously, leaseholders are hit very heavily by the potential financial ramifications of it, but renters are still sort of living in fear about the safety of their home. I think another point on the leaseholder-funded remediation, so if if the costs were passed to leaseholders or to landlords the remediation would just be slower. Like, you know, as, you know, leaseholders can't afford this. A lot of landlords simply don't have the financial reserves or the cash flow to do this. So, you know, you're hearing about local authorities struggling with their finances. Or if you're a small social landlord, a small housing association, and many housing associations are small, but you have a lot of, you know, high-rise blocks or blocks that are affected by this, finding the money to deal with that, it's just be it's going to be incredibly difficult. It's going to put a huge amount of financial pressure on.
0: While we're talking about the, the the funding and the financing of it all, it really does seem that it was cost savings that drove many of the decisions to adhere this kind of flammable cladding onto buildings. So, Steve, I'm keen. What's your view on the political decisions that led to this awful situation occurring in the first place? How do we get here?
2: I think it's it's again like a lot of things in housing it is surprisingly complicated and I think the first thing to think about is like why does any industry have standards like why do you have quality standards why do you have safety standards and it is essentially that first point is to ensure safety but the second point is also to ensure people get what they pay for um and So the obvious starting point around this is the government's sort of uh, very ill-named bonfire of red tape, uh, the coalition (laughs) government, Mm -hmm. in the early 2010s. So, So that led to a sort of relaxation of planning requirements and regulatory requirements. But even then... This probably shouldn't have happened. But what you do have is a combination of, I think we talked about this when I appeared before, is an incredibly diffuse supply chain in the construction industry. So you've got very, very few of these traditional sort of do everything, design and build organizations that control every part of the retrofit process or the refurbishment or the development process. The reality is you've got lots and lots of layers of subcontracting to minimize financial risk. And then this makes oversight of that whole process just a bit trickier. Added to that is also regulation, as it's sort of written down, isn't worth much if it is not enforced, and if there isn't the expertise and the capacity to enforce that. So the combination of the big cuts in sort of local authorities and other areas under austerity, probably combined with with a sort of loss of expertise in government, the you know the committee for architecture and built environment was abolished, the building research excellence group was privatised as was Energy Saving Trust. And this took a lot of expertise out of government. So it removed quite a lot of capacity to understand and enforce standards. And obviously, these standards are as much about that capacity to enforce them as, as the literal wording of them.
0: What do you think we can realistically expect the government to do about this? I mean, it has been, you know, four years.
2: Yeah, um, I think the political pressure is undoubtedly building. And this is, this is uh, people probably know better than I, but this is the number one issue for the Ministry for Housing, Communities and Local Government, you've had that 30-plus Conservative MPs signing these amendments to the Fire Safety Bill. So there's clearly a sort of groundswell of support in the Conservative Party. This isn't just an opposition issue. And obviously the Conservatives are traditionally the party of homeownership. And you should note that, you know, so, so the number of homeowners being affected by this plays directly into their sort of key political target groups. And you should also note, I think, most first-time buyers who are often affected by this, because a lot of these properties we're talking about are first-time buyer homes, are backed by the sort of bank of mum and dad. So the negative fallout of this as an issue is much wider than just the people immediately affected. And then what you've got is a huge knock-on effect to the wider housing market, because these flats, these leasehold flats, these first-time buyer flats, are almost always the sort of foundation point to any chain. Yeah. So actually, one flat not selling has a knock-on to, say, five or ten transactions that might potentially be caused by that. So weirdly, with the flagship government housing policy being the sort of stamp duty cut, it's sort of like running a bath without putting the plug in at the moment, because you're just draining this money out of the system by not by removing all these potential transactions. So added to that, you're also starting to see a lot of pressure from insurers and Pete touched on this is that, you know, insurers are simply and this includes like professional indemnity insurance for valuers and surveyors mm. who simply not sign off on an insurable
0: building. Mm.
2: Exactly. And obviously what we've seen from smoking legislation and climate change disinvestment is that, you know, insurers in, like, making that decision can have an incredibly quick change in how something is being approached. So, in terms of like, so I think the government are having to front up to this more and being pressured in a number of ways. The sort of options they've got are quite sort of spread. So, obviously, we've touched on leaseholders and rentals, we've touched on housing associations, social landlords paying. Developers have some similar issues to housing associations. You know, there's a talk about developer transaction tax, that sort of thing. Um, There'll be a question about whether they have the cash reserves, and that a lot of developers are quite fragile businesses, despite what you see. Um, so my guess is, as a sort of former political lobbyist, I think my guess is that the government will end up with some sort of blended approach, and that will and the noises and the wording they're putting out sort of imply that. So I'd have thought they will end up with increased government investment, but the potential for financial contributions from all parties. But another big element of this, and the size of the financial package required, and again, Pete had touched on this, is... Whether the insurance industry accepts, um, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors are currently reviewing the guidance around these EWS1 forms. So these are the forms you have to have if there's a, if the inspection you have to have if there's meant to be a if you're perceived to be a cladding issue with the building. Um, the RICS are reviewing this guidance. They've been consulting on it over the last month with the aim of essentially identifying, you know, what is the the really high-risk stuff? What what do you need to have this EWS1 form for? And what type of cladding do you not need it for? Because at the moment, what you're seeing is a blanket. Yeah, everyone's just running anything.
0: scared of the word. Yeah. 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 So
2: So if insurers are happy with the what the proposals that RICs are making So so for example, like a timber clad building with heat treated timber, that's okay under the RICS proposals. Whether it's ACML cladding that we talked about or high pressure laminate cladding, no matter what the building height, that it requires an EWS one. On. Mm. So so that so if insurers back that, that reduces the amount of investment that government and other parties would potentially have to make so there's and a presumably
0: freeze up this constipated housing market a bit and some flats can be sold and and kickstart that chain a bit uh, yeah
2: that's correct yeah yeah it should it should release some of the properties from that and yeah. obviously it's the lower risk stuff, of course. Um, so, but it, so it should also, mm. in theory, better identify high risk properties, regardless of height, because that's been one of the. Well, yeah, uh, Pete,
0: been... Pete, I was just going to bring you back on that. You've mentioned this a couple of times now. You you said um, that there's sort of different uh, requirements or or help for um, buildings. I think you said over 18 meters for those of us that are sort of you know uh, mathematically challenged. Roughly, how many stories are we talking about? It'd be six. An
1: eighteen-meter okay, 18 so, building is six. So over
0: over six stories, and it, it, it's being dealt with a bit more seriously than, than under. But presumably, if you were on the fifth floor of a burning building, you, you'd you'd feel pretty scared about getting out.
1: Yeah, the eighteen-meter line is, is is widely accepted to be quite arbitrary. Um, it was it was originally introduced due to the height of firefighters' ladders, um, but that's no longer relevant. And I've I've heard government officials just say that it's that it's kept because it's too complicated to change um there, there, there's no good fire safety reason why a building with five stories is safe in the and a building with six stories is not
0: we've been touching on the politics of this um and, and Steve's given us a kind of good overview of you know this isn't a, a, a bipartisan well it is sorry a bipartisan issue in terms of fixing it there are plenty of backbench conservatives making a lot of noise on it but I'd like to just hone in slightly on the Conservatives here, because this is something that keeps coming up in the reading I'm doing about uh, this scandal, is that some of the cladding companies themselves have made very generous donations to the Conservative Party over the last few years. And so I'm keen to get your view. Could, could coziness between government and these, these sorts of developers or cladding companies, whatever you want to call them, be part of the problem?
1: What happened in terms of the, the, the sort of three and a half year period that we've had is that the government initially said that it didn't want leaseholders to face the costs. And they kept repeating a phrase, which was, we will, not, we will rule nothing out. Um, they said that sort of, you know, for about two years, really. So if you, if you don't get on and pay for it yourselves, we will rule nothing out. And it sounded like they wanted to do something um, to create a bit of a stick Really, to force whether it's developers or freeholders or or whoever else to to stump up the cash in the end, that turned out to be an empty threat because no such you know legislative means has been forthcoming. I think what is what I would say is, is complicated it's not like there there isn't an easy button that you could press and just force developers to pay. And as Steve mentioned, you probably can't just lump all of this at once onto their, mm. their doorstep and say, right, here's an invoice, pay it. But what what is certainly clear is that at a time, at least within their rhetoric, there was a threat of um, stronger action to the industry. And, and that threat has never been realised. And, you know, we can only speculate about the, the internal party discussions that were had, not to go down the route of taking a tougher approach with industry. Um, just to give some some sort of further political insight at the moment, the government is, is, is public domain information that a guy, uh, an advisor to the cabinet office called Michael Wade, um, has developed a, a, a proposal where the residents of the buildings would effectively repay loans that the owner of the building took out. You know, the campaigners have called that a cladding tax because it it would effectively mean they were, um, you know, paying a a quite substantially increased service charge for a very long period of time in order to cover the cost of the works. The tension within government at the moment is between the Treasury that want that loan to, to really just do all of the heavy lifting in terms of paying for this and MHCLG, who I think fear... The political backlash from uh, a core voter constituent, and and want the the sort of levies on industry and, and taxpayer um, contribution to do the heavier lifting. I think Steve's right in that that the government I think will will adopt a blended approach, and and, and I think what's happening right now is um, a, a political ar- argument at the upper echelons of the Conservative Party about how that blend is formed.
0: Steve, alongside a pandemic and a housing crisis, we are, of course, also facing a climate crisis. To reach net zero by 2050 um, and the energy efficiency standards that come in long before then, we're actually going to have to install a lot more insulation uh, in homes of all types. How are we going to get this done safely? And how do you get resident buy-in in light of everything that's happened?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think it's a sort of spot on point. So we've been looking at this in a lot of depth at Clarion as part of our sort of new sustainability strategy. So we've got this focus on making us a business that's good for people on the planet. And I think there's still two really good reasons why we need to do this, which is basically 23%, about a quarter of UK carbon emissions are from domestic properties, they're from homes. And about 10% of all UK households are classed as fuel poor. Uh, so that's 2.4 million households. So we've got this history in the UK where our homes are sort of like US cars. They're sort of inefficient because we've got historically cheap fuel and, and we know we need to improve them. So it's a really tricky one. And, and as you know, from Northern Ireland, like energy efficient retrofit does actually happen no, to bring indeed. down a government. <laughs> so it's, a, it's quite a serious set of issues you're aligning there. But you're totally right. There's real concern that the damage done to the perception of refurbishment by this cladding scandal is and and not unreasonably will create a kind of vaccine hesitancy for the building refurbishment industry. And I think there's another point to this, which is you talked about insulation. Insulation is really important in energy efficiency and sustainability, but ideally what you want to do is you want to take what's called like a whole house or a whole neighborhood approach so you you know you change the insulation you change the cladding you change the heat systems you change the windows you do everything in one go because it minimizes the disruption and it maximizes the sort of benefits of it in as short a time as possible. But in the UK, historically, we've focused really heavily on component parts. So the, you know, the aforementioned uh, RHI program was you know about heat pumps. You have things yeah. about insulation. You have boilers. So the issue is people being resistant to cladding or to insulation will make taking this whole house approach much trickier. Because actually it might be much easier just, just to go, do you know what we'll just replace boilers and we'll just or we'll just replace windows and we won't do anything like that. So I think what we can do about this is robust enforced safety standards. That's that's the first starting point. People have to be convinced, they have to know that this stuff is safe and they have to know that it's inspected. And then the sort of so like a demonstrable improvement on performance is really important here. I think there's also a lot of opportunity for the entire you know, government housing to learn from other industries, which rely really heavily around trust and around safety. So aviation. yeah. Um, also, this sort of stuff is done on a daily basis in other Northern European countries. It's commonplace. It's successful. Like Germany, Scandinavia deliver this stuff very effectively. So learning from them, finding out what works there. And I think... The last point, and probably another sort of one that is a bit tricky, um, because housing as an industry and as a sort of government area tends to be quite paternalistic about its approach, but we have to make these things desirable. Like, it can't just be that... you like housing often talks about the performance and energy efficiency in terms of sort of things it's a thing called a sap rating which is basically the energy efficiency of a building um but we have to actually talk about you know this stuff has to look good it has to make your house warmer it has to be easy to understand easy to use and i think that's a sort of change in approach it's a much more customer focused approach and an approach that actually takes much more seriously the benefit to the to the people who are receiving this improvement. There's a really good quote by uh, a guy, I think it's called a uh, German energy efficiency engineer. And he said that basically his, his dream for people would be to have the perfect energy efficient house, wouldn't have any residents in it because they <laughs> used not all the technology incorrectly. And I think this is, and it's, you know, that's, so that's the point he's making. It's about everyone being able to understand and utilize this stuff and, and put it forward. So I think that's a really important point to understand.
0: Never thought I'd hear you advocating empty homes.
2: Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just for clarity, absolutely not that. I, I I <laughs> um, uh,
0: and, and finally, Peter, far be it from us to, to ever want to be accused of being uh, London um, elites, is, is this a national scandal or is it predominantly a london issue and if it is mostly a a a problem affecting the south and the government is going to have to make a significant contribution towards these 15 billion in total costs that you've cited why should taxpayers in the north contribute when they've already you know been disproportionately affected by the current recession and brexit and things like that um
1: it's not a London issue um, it, 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 this is an issue that I think primarily affects areas where there's been a lot of new build which has been achieved through high-rise and so you have lots and lots and lots of cases in Birmingham you have um a, a very very high concentration of, of these towers in in the center of Manchester um Leeds Sheffield I've been to towers with ACM planning on in Plymouth there are more in London that, that, mm-hmm. that Certainly true, but um, this is an urban problem. You don't, you're not, rural constituencies aren't going to see an awful lot of this, but urban areas are. The latter half of your question is an interesting point. I think it's probably lesser, why should the North pay to fix a problem in London as to why should the taxpayer pay to fix a problem of the construction industry? And I think that's where the government does need to have, it does need to be able to say, we, we found a way to make the people make the the polluter pay really and make the people who who even if it was loose regulations which which is certainly a big contributing factor people have profited from selling these homes and it's those people that profited that we have to design a way to make contribute to the cleanup i think we talked about climate change a moment ago and i think establishing that principle and establishing those mechanisms is important not just for fixing this crisis but for the larger crisis which which we face over the next 50 years of 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 decarbonizing our economy
0: thank you very much both of you i'm afraid that's all there is for today steve pete absolutely enlightening it's it's really helped me understand the whole issue better thank you so much for joining us you're
2: welcome Uh, a pleasure thank you naomi
0: and to those at home, thank you for listening. If you enjoy these Bunker episodes, make sure to leave us a lovely review over on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find the show.
2: The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofraniewicz. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily... Is a Podmasters production.